Welcome to another edition of Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the new soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton. Joining me for this episode, special holiday episode. I know we've been off for a couple weeks. There's been a bunch of stuff going on with gridiron football these last couple weeks. I've been down in Virginia to see Montana play James Madison down in Texas to see Montana State beat Sam Houston. I've actually been following that Montana State team pretty closely. That's now in the national championship game, so it's been a little hectic here at ESPN Missoula. But we're back in the studio for a little soccer talk. Joining me, Ross McMoneys, the executive director of Missoula Strikers. Strikers celebrating their 40th anniversary, I believe, this spring. So that's very cool. Ross, you're the executive director. You told me you've been there now for, for seven or eight years. Just tell me a little bit about your, your background. I, I want to say, first off, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Especially, for me. especially just a couple days before Christmas here. But tell me a little bit about your background and, and where you're from and sort of how you ended up in Missoula. Oh, man. Um, so that's a long story. So I'll sure. try and keep it as short as possible. Um, I, I was born in Scotland. Um, my parents are Scottish. Uh, I grew up a Glasgow Rangers fan, so diehard Scott. Um, but we moved from Scotland when I was about three years old. My, my parents were in the army, so we moved to Germany, um, lived in Germany for a long part of my childhood, moved to Belgium, lived in Holland, um, then moved to England when I was about 13, um, and then came out to the States when I was 24. Uh, so I've been here for about 10, 11 years now. So. I've talked with, you know, Chris Chitovitsky, the, the head coach over at Montana. He's He grew up in a bunch of different countries, too. What was it like, and, and especially the soccer angle of that, just being in that many different cultures as you were growing up? You know, soccer was my one consistent thing in my life. You know, I, I moved to three different schools in one year before. It was really difficult um, having my parents being in they had a specific job in the army so every time my dad worked for the general in the british army so every time the general moved we had to follow and it was very often so it was difficult um moving to new schools meeting new people um you know it was definitely a challenge but soccer was that one consistent you know i took a ball to school every day of, of my first day at school i took a ball and then all of a sudden i had you know 20 friends that wanted to kick a ball around with me so um it's great it was awesome bringing um coming up in all of those environments um but i was always kind of sheltered in a british camp as well so you know i there wasn't mingling with different languages and all of that kind of stuff um too much um, but yeah, soccer was always that one steady thing for me, which was kind of a, a lifesaver, really. Did you stay a Rangers fan as you, as you moved and, and hopscotched across? Yeah, yeah. My my dad was a diehard Glasgow Rangers fan. My older brother, who's five years older than me, was a Glasgow Rangers fan. And we would always go back for holidays back to Scotland to see family and friends. Um, but yeah, up until maybe the age of 14, Glasgow Rangers was my team and I was a diehard Glasgow Rangers fan. But at the time, they sold all of their best players. Um, you know, Van Bron- Van- Giovanni Van Bronckhorst went to Arsenal, then went on to play for Barcelona. George Alberts went back to Germany. Brian Laudrup moved to Chelsea. So then he was my favorite player, and that's when I joined Chelsea. So I've been following Chelsea ever since, too. 
Explain a little bit just the old firm rivalry between between Rangers and Celtic because it's one of the the greatest I think sporting rivalries on the planet. Just not not even in soccer, but a lot of people don't know about it because the teams aren't very recognizable here in America if you don't know about it. Yeah, you know it, it's it's very much rooted in in uh, religion. So the Glasgow Rangers side are Protestant and the Celtic side are Catholics. And there's such hatred there. When I was a kid, I remember I went out to a bowling alley for my birthday and I was wearing a Glasgow Rangers shirt. And on the, on the uh, door of the bowling alley, it had a message that said no colors. And what that meant was no sports colors. Because if you were caught in the wrong neighborhood um, wearing a Glasgow Rangers jersey, that was trouble. Um, I remember one instance when my dad, my dad and I were just walking to the store and there was a guy walking the other direction coming towards us wearing a Celtic jersey. And my dad made us cross the road just so there was no conflict. Even though we weren't wearing uh, Rangers colors, he just like, there was such hatred for that green. Um, and the same on the other side, there's such hatred for blue. That, that rivalry is, is unmatched across the world. It's, it's nuts. Yeah, it's it's a really um, unknown thing. I think the import that soccer rivalries can have, and, and the degree to which soccer teams in Europe are sort of used as, as pillars or, or avatars for a certain community. I, you know, Barcelona and Real Madrid, of course, in in Spain, where Barcelona is not just a soccer team, but it's often a symbol of Catalan independence, and Real Madrid is a symbol of the government power in Madrid. Um, it's you don't have that in. America, really. I mean, Michigan, Ohio State, whatever, Montana, Montana State, whatever. You don't have these teams that are also serving as avatars for sort of really deeper societal things. But that that's super interesting that you grew up in it. What I wanted to ask is, when you moved to America, did you did you settle in Missoula right away, or, or where were you? Yeah, you know, I came out in 2009 on a nine-month work visa, coaching for MLS camps, it was at the time. And I originally asked if they would place me in Chicago or California, a big soccer hub. Um, and they sent me to Missoula. Missoula was the first place I landed in the States. And I rolled with it. It was very different to what I was used to. I was used to growing up in bigger cities. Um, but it was a cool experience, loved it. And then, uh, you know, I was only here for the, like the spring season. I ended up going back to England in 2010 and came back out again, because I, I, I loved America. I re really wanted to settle here. And it turned out Missoula was the only option that I could find to come back again. So I was like, oh, I'll, I, you know, I'll bite the bullet, I'll come back, I'll you know, use it as a stepping stone to find something else. And I ended up marrying my wife here in the end of 2010 and sticking around. And honestly, I love Missoula. It'd be really hard to leave. You know, like I said, growing up, I moved around a lot. This is the place I've lived longest my whole life. It'd be really hard to, to leave now at this point. Yeah, how did, how did you get into coaching? And more than that, I mean, how do you make the transition from playing and, and following it into coaching. Yeah, that's right. So I, I started playing when I was four years old. You know, I had a brother that was older than me, five years older. So I was always like playing with him and his buddies and competing and, you know, trying to prove that I was better than him. You know, when I was in my maybe like 11, 12-ish, that, that's when I really started to feel like this is my passion. This is what I want to do. Like I want to be a professional soccer player. So I, I spent a lot of years chasing that dream 
um, and it's tough. You know, in the UK, in Europe, you play 10 months out of the year. It's constant, two games a week. And for me, I feel like I just got to a point where it was really beating up my body. I had a lot of ankle injuries. I was very close to making it at a professional level on a couple of occasions. Injuries, I feel, prevented that. Um, but I did play semi-professional for like 10 years before I came to the States too. Um, it's just such a grind, you know, it's it, when soccer, especially when you start earning money playing soccer, it becomes a job and it changes the game a little bit for you. Um, but then when I realized kind of at t the age of 24 is when I came to the States, I kind of realized that I wasn't more than likely I wasn't going to make it to the professional level. Um, so coaching was the next best thing, thing for me. And I had a coach when I was 18 that really inspired me. I was quite a quiet kid, um, kind of reserved, introvert. But I had this one coach that I saw a lot of those similar traits in. He seemed quite quiet, but as a coach, he just like lit up, like he was totally different. And he was the guy that I was like, wow, like I could, I could do that. Um, you know, before then, I probably didn't really have the confidence to stand up in front of a group and even talk, let alone run a practice. Um, but he was the guy that made me believe that I could do it. What position did you play? Me, I was a, well, I, my most successful years was as a center mid, but I started as a right back. I had a number of years playing as a center forward, goal scorer. Um, an attacking mid, lots of goals, box to, box to box, kind of like a Frank Lampard type, you know, lots of goals from midfield. But my most successful spell was as a holding mid. Missoula Strikers Executive Director Ross McMoney is joining us for this edition of the Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast. Talking about you played a lot of different positions in, in your career. Do you think that's helpful for kids growing up? I mean, you have been coaching now, I guess, since you came over to, to the U.S.? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've been coaching for like since I was 16. Okay. Um, or maybe 18, 16, 18. Whenever I met that coach, that's kind of when I first started coaching. Um, but yeah, personally, I played a lot of positions and I do feel like it, it just adds a lot of strings to your bow, right? Like you, you see the game differently as a right back compared to a center mid. Um, so I think being able to bounce around in different positions and, and build that versatility as a player is it really helped me for sure. You know, I would I, I play for one team as a centre mid and I'd move to the next team and, and the coach would like me at, you know, left wing. And being adaptable like that is really important. You know, we will have a lot of kids and strikers that play a certain position but then go off to college and the college coach wants them to play outside back. You need to be able to do that. So really important yeah talking about strikers here I mean what is your developmental goal when you get it when you get a kid in there at, at eight or ten or, or whenever they enter the program what do you want them to, to say or what do you want them to have accomplished by the time they're 18 and, and they leave right yeah you know <clears throat> for me my my uh, perspective has changed over the last few years um, you know had we had this conversation five years ago I would have probably gave you information about like making great soccer players but now my mindset is more about like creating good people um, 
you know, when we get hold of an eight-year-old, like we really want to take our time and be patient. There's a lot of coaches and clubs out there that want to travel the far corners of the region, going to tournaments and burning these kids out by the time they even hit their teens. So we take a very, um, you know, more patient approach to that for sure. Um, but we really focus on building a technical foundation and making sure, for example, that these kids can play multiple positions, they have multiple skill sets, um, and, and just try and instill a love. If we do too much too soon, then it's, it's quite easy to burn not only the kids, but burn the parents out too. Right, and that's sort of been the the contrast of, of American soccer development, or at least from what I've, I've picked up about it. I mean, you have the struggle because a lot of sport development in America is about just winning games, regardless of what age the kids are, what stage they are in the de- their development. I mean, that's like the criticism you hear of the AAU basketball scene all the time is these, these coaches just want to win tournaments. But I think that a lot of the most successful soccer development in the world, which you see in Europe and South America, is focused on not that, and it's building up a skill base, and that's sort of been where America has struggled, and you hear a lot of people talking about that. This focus on winning, it doesn't it doesn't help the kids at all. Have you, have you seen that, and, and what do you sort of think about that, that dichotomy? I mean, a lot of people have said that it's gotten better in America in recent years, that, that more programs are focusing on development, but what have you seen? I mean, you've been around it for a long time now. Yeah, you know, I would like to think that it's getting better. Um, I feel like there are more coaches across the states that have that mindset, that are taking a more patient approach and building good habits. Um, But unfortunately, I think we're outweighed by the coaches that want to cater to their own egos and win trophies oftentimes for themselves and don't really care too much about the development of kids. Um, you know, winning's important. We all love to win. We all want to win. But we take a more long-term approach. You know, these kids, if we develop them the right way, they're going to win for the rest of their lives. Not just on a soccer field, but in life too. They're going to learn some life skills that are going to help them in, in college, in relationships, at work, when they get jobs in the future. Um, so, yeah, we're not really focused on just winning at any cost. So, How does that show itself? I mean, how does that take root in your philosophies and your, and your day-to-day? I mean, how do you really, how do you push that attitude? Uh, sometimes it shows itself in losses, you know. Sure. Um, our younger teams, uh, you know, we play out of the back, for example, and we try to connect passes through the thirds of the field by breaking teams down and, and you know, not just kicking it from the goalkeeper all the way to the center forward and missing everybody out and just, you know, playing it to our fastest, strongest kid, which a lot of teams do. Um, so by trying to build those habits at the younger ages, sometimes we're trying to build out, the ball gets stolen, we get scored on because we're so close to our own goal. But as we progress through the age groups, we really start to see that success. And as the you know physical maturity levels out and kids are, our kids are just as fast and just as strong as everybody else, then the soccer really starts to take over. And because we've developed that at a younger age, the other teams we come up against find it really hard to play against us. You know, we have like a possession-based style of play. We move the ball. Um, and at the older age groups, that leads to teams chasing it a lot. Um, yeah, so 
I, I, I really believe in what we do um, and we see the results. Unfortunately, we see the results at 16, 17 and 18. And I think it's hard for a lot of the parents when they're not seeing those results in the early age groups. Right, I was gonna ask about that. I mean, is it difficult for the parents and it, it must be for the kids as well because they're used to seeing those results so they're used to seeing at least winning be the objective if they're playing basketball and they're you know they're in their high school basketball program or, or whatever they're playing travel baseball at a young age it can often be you know these teams are very focused on winning is it difficult for them to make that that transition and sort of that mind shift sometimes yeah you know i would say it's it's definitely more difficult for the parents than the kids the kids are at practice they're getting the message every single day they see the development that they're making they see the good moments when pieces come together in practices the parents aren't there for that stuff so they they only see what they see on a on a Saturday come game time. Um, you know, we try to, um, you know, communicate with the parents as much as possible on the philosophy and the benefits of what we do and taking our time with it. Um, fortunately for us, we're in a position now where our high school kids that just recently graduated, they were the first team that really started with this philosophy. So we have you know, film of them being successful at the older age groups. So we can present that to the younger teams and be like, hey, like if we stick with this philosophy, this is what you're gonna look like. Whereas the, the high school kids that have just graduated, they didn't have that. So they just had to kind of blindly trust that we knew what we were doing. Ross McMoney is the executive director of Missoula Strikers. Joining us for this edition of Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Ross, just in general, and, and you talked about the coach that really influenced you when you were young. What are your biggest developmental influences? I mean, what um, what coaches do you, do you watch and admire and try to take things from? Yeah, you know, I, I realized this recently, actually, going back to talking about Glasgow Rangers. I haven't been a Rangers fan since I was 14. But I joined this Facebook group and they often post videos and I'm watching these videos and I'm like, man, this is this is how my teams play. So subconsciously, I have taken what I've seen from my youth after watching game after game of Glasgow Rangers. And that's that's my style. Glasgow Rangers of the 90s would they were possession based. They would ping the ball around. They would connect passes, a lot of combination play. And um yeah, so I think really that's my biggest influence and I didn't even realize it. Uh, Coaching-wise, it was George Quinn who got me into it. Um, nowadays, I would say, obviously, you know, the, the top names, Klopp, Pep. Uh, excited to see what Arteta can do. Um, Jose Mourinho, obviously being a Chelsea fan in, in his more successful days was one of the guys. Um, but ultimately, like, it's... The, the coaches around me. Like I've learned a lot from our strikers coaches and you know, I'm trying to steal stuff from anybody and wherever I can get it. That leads off into a bunch of different paths. I guess starting with, with strikers, how do you find coaches that you, that you want to coach there? And you know, what, what are the kind of people that you want to bring in to, to coach there? 
Yeah, you know, finding coaches is is tough. Um, finding coaches that fit the strikers' philosophy is tougher. Um, but you know, you you mentioned that. I, I appreciate that. Finding people, finding good, nice people um, who are going to be good role models for these kids, who aren't going to be selfish. You know, aren't going to be wanting to win games just you know so they can feel good about themselves. It's about um, finding someone that can be a good role model, buy into our philosophy, be super patient with it. If they have soccer experience and and qualifications and all of that stuff, then that's kind of a bonus. But we can teach those coaches how to be coaches too. So um, it's more important than that we bring in good people. Sure, and I guess it is more structured in soccer because to coach you have to keep working up and getting your licenses generally. I mean, you can walk in off the street basically and, and coach high school basketball, but in, in soccer it's much more structured and, and regimented, right? So that helps a little bit. Yeah, yeah, sh- for sure. Yeah, the, I don't know if they have it in basketball or anything like that, do they? The licensing structure, no? So yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I became a coach coach educator myself in the last couple of years so I can teach those licenses now at the grassroots level um, I actually <clears throat> I'm taking my A license right now I'm really close to passing that I have a for B so the structure is in place for you know anyone that's really interested in soccer to progress and become a good coach like anything it just takes time and dedication yeah and I, I guess we should explain what we're talking about here there's a, a sequence of licenses that you earn that you have to earn to keep coaching that are regulated by basically the national federations or yeah. the, the continental federations yeah that's right so you have to constantly be taking these classes as a coach, if you want to progress, because to coach at the higher levels, you uh, these licenses are a prerequisite. Yeah, you know, and, and the game's changing constantly. It's always evolving. The game that I played 10 years ago is not the same game now. So it's really important that you, that you keep up with it. Yeah, and I guess that leads me back to the other question, sort of talking about coaching influences here. The big philosophical battle... Um, of, of genuinely the last 20 years, and, and you mentioned both of these guys, was, was Pep Guardiola's possession-based system against Jose Mourinho, who, whose goal was to kill the space, I mean, and, and kill off the game and play really defensively and hit on the counter. A couple-part question here. I mean, what have you thought of, of that push and pull that's really defined the game these last 20 years, especially when Guardiola was at Barcelona and Mourinho was, of course, at Real Madrid and those teams had some great battles. And then you mentioned Jurgen Klopp coming up. I mean, what do you think is the new tactical system or the new philosophies that will define the game as we're going forward? That's interesting, isn't it? If we could have a crystal ball and predict the future, that'd be awesome. Right. Um, I'd, I'd be ahead of the game. Um, but that's the, that's the great thing about soccer. There's no one way. There's no right way to do it. You know, you can park the bus like Mourinho and and you know play a center forward like Drogba or you can play through the lines like Pep and keep the ball for 90% of the game um, but possession doesn't win games and parking the bus doesn't win games either I mean yeah but that, yeah I mean that's the great thing you can take something from all of these guys and yeah develop your own style yeah and in soccer I think it's really much more clearly laid out the the battles between these systems and and tactically what coaches are trying to do i mean you wouldn't talk about 
you know, basketball coaches that same way because mm-hmm. eventually everybody's running the same thing in the NBA. I mean, when the Warriors started switching everything on defense, you started seeing everybody trying to acquire those same type of players so they could run that. When the high pick and roll took over in the NBA, you started seeing everybody getting guys who could run that. But in soccer, you know, it's diverse enough that these different systems are allowed to flourish. I guess one more thing about just coaching and the way the way it happens, and, and this goes back to Pep Guardiola. I was reading about him, and he said that he would, you know, watch tape for hours and hours and hours until he found the one thing that would give those Barcelona teams an advantage, and it was just the greatest moment of all time. I mean, if that was what he did it for, do, do you – do that? I mean, is it is it similar for you? I mean, what's the the sort of epiphany when when you see something and what another team is doing? Yeah, you know, soccer, I'm like, soccer is all encompassing for me. If I'm not coaching, I'm playing. If I'm not playing, I'm watching it. If I'm not watching it, I'm reading about it. Like, it's all I do every day, all day. Um, it's hard to switch my mind off. So, yeah, I'm constantly thinking about how how I can make the club better, how I can make my own teams better, how I can develop my own coaching style, how I can develop my my own communication with my players. Um, you can always add something that's going to enhance you as a coach. How much are you actually, I mean, you're the executive director. How much are you on the on the sidelines coaching? I mean, are there teams that you still take, take charge of? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of out of necessity too. Sure. Um, we have a couple teams that aren't, filled with coaching positions right now so I I often have to jump in and take the lead on some but yeah I mean coaching is my passion I'm I don't think I would do this job if I wasn't allowed to to coach honestly um you know I feel most alive when I'm on the grass interacting with kids and and coaching soccer so that's my my number one passion and I'm I'm always going to do that I think how much can you do in game you know when you're on the sideline you know yeah this is interesting when i when i started my a license this was around this time last year um i went into my license very confident on my in training coaching um and i wasn't too confident with my in game management um so I wanted. I went into the course wanting to develop my game management and steal some ideas on how best to observe the other team and and react to what they're doing and take advantage of any weaknesses. So yeah, you know I've learned a lot over the last year on how to observe the other team, like how are they building out? How are they playing through the? Are they playing through the thirds? Are they missing the thirds out? Like who are their key players? Are they playing down the left? Like constantly trying to like identify the themes in what they're doing. Um, so as a coach, for me, my theme pretty much is keeping the ball, like play to my center back, play to my outside back, penetrate to my center mids. My center mids are and, and my outside backs are really key in what I do. So as an opposing coach, I would be trying to identify those things and then trying to combat it with you know, maybe a, a higher press or drop deeper or however you, you think you might benefit. Yeah, what's the the first sort of tactical idea that you teach these kids or that you try to teach these kids when they're coming in? Because you, you talk about where you want to get to. I mean, you your system, the way you want your teams to play is, is keeping the ball and, and playing through the lines and keeping the ball on the ground. And etc. And that's sort of the finished product. What do you what do you try to teach the kids 
when they're just coming in? I mean, the first tactical idea to get them started on the path towards doing that. For me, the number one thing in every session I've ever coached is creating space. I think if you have the ability to create space, even when there is no space, if you can figure out a way to give yourself an extra yard, you're going to have more time to make decisions. You're going to have you, you, you're going to be able to execute those decisions um, more proficiently. Um, so for me, creating space is always number one. Well, and that's the thing that is very, I mean, you said figure out how to create space. It, it, it really is just a problem solving yeah. thing, right? I mean, yeah. it's not something that you can teach really wrote like here is what you do if these defenders are here these defenders are here you can do some of that but a lot of times it is just thinking quickly and being able to figure out a solution to, to get that space yeah you know you you spend as a soccer player you spend so much time off the ball sure that what you do off the ball is really really important and not you don't need to just create space for yourself all the time you need to be thinking about how you create space for your teammates too so uh, for me it just boils down to that and that's something that, that comes from, I mean, genuinely just, just playing, right? And then that makes it easier for you to figure out those solutions as the problems come up. That's another thing that I find so fascinating about the game. I mean, it's very free-flowing and inventive and, and creative and, and really split-second thinking mm -hmm. when you are in those problems and you're trying to come up with the solution to create space. Yeah. But it, it just comes from, from playing. Yeah, you know, that that's why Pep's teams are so good. They're sure. so good at creating space. You don't have 70 to 80% of possession if you can't keep, you know, keep your space well and stretch other teams out. And, you know, it's easy to keep the ball when you have created so much space and the defending team has to just chase it all over the place. So, Missoula Strikers Executive Director Ross McMoney is joining us for this edition of the Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast. I'm Andrew Houghton. Ross, we've kept you in here for about a half hour now. Thank you so much for your time. Let's wrap up here. I wanted to talk about this, but we are approaching mid-season in all the big European leagues. Who knows if we're going to have these leagues uh, after the holiday period because of the, the COVID spike uh, across a lot of countries in Europe. I know the Premier League has canceled a bunch of games, but what have you thought about the season to this point? Um, as a Chelsea fan, I started off super confident. Yeah. Thomas Tuchel had Chelsea firing at the start of the season, um, and I was really excited that we were just going to run away with it. But of course, Man City are sitting comfortable at the top. Liverpool look dominant, other than the 2-2 tie against Spurs the other day. Um, and Chelsea are falling down a little bit. Um, they're struggling to get through games. So um, honestly, I think it will be the same old story. Man City will just walk it. So yeah, it's exciting though. It's what a, what a great season for some soccer. Right, they're, they're three points clear right now? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it, it has been a good season because I think there is, I'd say the same thing, that Manchester City is probably the favorite right now, but I think there is a little bit of a title race, and there's certainly a race for the rest of the European spots because there are three teams that seem pretty locked in at the top, and that leaves the Champions League spot open. And then, of course, the, the Europa League and the Conference League spots, too. Yeah, and it's great to see a club like West Ham yeah. in, the, in the fight, you know? Like, I, I think the year Leicester won the Premier League, for example, it's, it's great to see those underdogs fighting um, for the top spots. So I'm kind of rooting for West Ham a little bit, too, even though I don't want Chelsea to drop below them. Right. It's, it's really interesting. It's... it's completely different from American sports where you, you have the playoff race, but you, you have 
these teams are not fighting for the same thing a lot of the time, but they almost all of the teams in the league, especially in a year like this, are fighting for something, and mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, even down the other end of the table, Newcastle, who just got a takeover and they have all the money in the world, they're fighting for relegation. Like, they, they want to get out of that and escape it so they can stay in the Premier League. Like, that's why I love the Premier League so much. I don't watch too much of the Spanish and the Italian and French leagues. I, I'm just so captivated with the Premier League. I, I watch almost every game. Okay, so aside aside from West Ham, I mean, who have been the teams or, or the players that have really surprised you this year or have been under the radar a little bit, but that you think are, are playing really well? Let's see. I, You know, I really loved Leeds last year, so I, I still watch a lot of Leeds, really hoping that they can come through it, but they're, they're struggling with injuries. Um, I'm pleased to see David Moyes do well at West Ham after it didn't work out at Manchester United. Um Newcastle, kind of rooting for them. I grew up in Durham, northeast of England, near Newcastle for a while, so I have a lot of Newcastle friends. I'd hate to see them get relegated. Um, I'm a little bored with Brighton and Norwich. I'd love to see them go down, uh, and Watford too. Um, I wouldn't get up at five o'clock in the morning to watch Watford and Brighton. Right. but yeah, I mean, I, I'm honestly, I say I'm a Chelsea fan, but I just love soccer. Like, I, I will watch any game that's on TV. What have you thought about this year's Chelsea team coming off of the year that they had last year, of course, winning the Champions League after switching to Thomas Tuchel as, as manager? It's really interesting. You know, I think Thomas Tuchel's such a great manager, and he switches it up game to game with players and strategy and his approach um, based on the competition that he's playing. I really thought Lukaku was going to be that missing link for us. And I think at the start of the season, it was kind of looking like he was was for a minute. Yeah. yeah. But then injuries and and now COVID has kept him out of the lineup. So I, I hope once he gets back, he can give us a good push towards the end of the season. I guess across the rest of the European leagues, it has been... I mean, a bit more. Not quite as much suspense, at least at the top. I think Bayern's 14 points clear. In the Bundesliga, PSG is running away with Ligue 1. You know, Real Madrid's six points clear on La Liga. So it's mm-hmm. just, it, it's it's interesting to see that dominance because it sets up a, a really clear-cut narrative every year, which is just, is this going to be the year that somebody is able to knock off one of those teams, especially in leagues like the Bundesliga where Bayern's going on, you know, 10 straight years now of winning it. Mm -hmm. And it makes it all the more better when somebody knocks off one of those teams like happened in Ligue 1 last year with PSG losing. But it, you know, the Premier League just has that suspense week to week that that not a lot of the other leagues can match. And it's just interesting, but that's the state of, of soccer right now. Yeah, and that's what it was like when I was growing up as a Glasgow Rangers fan. You know, they, they won nine in a row. Yeah. And it was always about Celtic. Is this going to be the year they're going to knock Rangers off and stop them from winning another title? And actually, Steven Gerrard stopped Celtic winning their 10th in a row. And now it's it's great to see him in the Premier League again with Aston Villa. I'm excited to see what Gerrard can do. He's been off to a good start. Aside from, from Laudrup, I mean, who are, who are the players that you um, followed or, or were, were attracted to growing up or were, were a fan of? So it started, obviously started with Glasgow Rangers. Ali McCoist was the top goal scorer, number nine. Um, then Brian Laudrup. Then uh, George Alberts, who was a German player. Um, Giovanni Van Bronckhorst. 
they all wore number 11 except for McCoist. So that <laughs> I, I eventually adopted that number too. Um, as I got older, it was players like Reno Gattuso, it was Kaka, um, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho, the real Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, he was like God to me, unbelievable. Um, if it wasn't for all of his injuries, he would have been incredible. Yeah, you, you went from, from naming all European guys to all the, the Brazilians, the yeah. South American guys. What, what was it like seeing those guys come into the Premier League? And a, a lot of those guys were, you know, you don't want to say stereotypical Brazilians, but, you know, Kaká, Rivaldo... Yeah, had, had, had a bunch of flair. There was a there was a time when Kaká almost signed for Chelsea and it didn't happen. Unfortunately, we haven't seen a lot of those top player, top Brazilian players come to the Premier League. Um, I'd love to see Ronaldinho in his prime in the Premier League and um, Ronaldo and Rivaldo, all those guys. I think at the time. I was drawn to those players because I was playing in those positions. So, you know, when I started playing holding mid, I was more attracted to holding mid types because I would I would study them. You know, Makaleli for Chelsea, for example. You know, to to be so good that you get a position named after you is incredible. Um, so I was always drawn to the players that I was playing a similar position to, so I could study them and apply that to my game. Ross McMoney is the executive director of Missoula Strikers, joining us for this edition of Soccer and Snow and Smoke. Ross, man, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you coming in, especially so close to Christmas, but it was great talking with you. I hope to have you on again, but thank you for your time. Yeah, I'd love that. Anytime. That wraps up another edition of Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the new podcast from ESPN Missoula Radio. I'm Andrew Houghton. You can catch excerpts of Soccer in Snow and Smoke on Nuanez Now, weekdays 4 to 6 on 102.9 ESPN Missoula, and find the full show online on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.